Uh, if you have your Bible this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews. As we'll finish up chapter 7 this morning, you, you can go ahead and stand if you'd like and we'll, we'll read our text. Hebrews chapter 7, uh, we're going to begin in verse 11. He says, now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For The one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that the Lord has descended from Judah, and in connection with the tribe of Moses, said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law had made, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it is not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. You may be seated. I want to tell you this morning that we are very fortunate in the fact that we serve a God who is holy. We serve a God who is completely perfect in all things. He is completely perfect and can never be defiled. There is no wrong He has ever done. There is nothing impure that He has ever thought. But we serve a holy God who demands perfection. He demands that you and I be perfect. He desires that, and He commands that 
in every single situation. There is no situation where God accepts less than perfection. And why should he? He is perfect and he is holy. And the truth of the matter is, he made us perfect and holy as well. He created us that way. Now you look around you, and I look around me, and we understand that that doesn't continue to be the case. That is very real to me even this morning. Having just yesterday went to the funeral of my uncle, I am able to see any time I go to a funeral how we no longer exist as perfect. But God demands it, as well he should. And so what can we do about the fact that we are far from perfect? How do we reconcile that God is perfect and holy and demands that of us, and at the same time, we are nowhere near perfect. As a matter of fact, this morning, if you think you're perfect, see me after the service, and I'll gladly point out your faults if that's what's needed. Let's be honest. We understand that. When we're honest with ourselves, we understand we are not perfect. So how do we reconcile that? How do imperfect people satisfy a God who will settle for nothing less than perfection? We need a way that we can stand before God and be declared holy. But our holy God, who is perfect, will not just look over our sin. He will not simply glaze over our imperfection. He's not going to go, well, it's okay. We do that with our children, right? We, We realize their imperfections and we let some of it go. You do that if you're a teacher. You do that in the place that you work. Maybe you manage people and they are imperfect and you realize that. And so there are times when you can just let it slide because they're imperfect. But God does not do that. He does not let one single sin slide. Think about the first sin. It was nothing horrific. It wasn't as if the first sin was somebody being murdered. They simply ate from a tree. God does not let sin slide. So how do we become holy? Friends, this verse before us, these passages, this passage before us describes how God takes Christ and puts him in our place. Christ gives us his righteousness. So when God looks at us, what he sees is not our sin and imperfection and inability, but rather he looks at us and he sees the righteousness of his Son. That is the only way that we can satisfy God's desire that we be holy. 
This morning, I want us to look at how God accomplishes this. Because it is the ultimate question. It is the ultimate problem that we have. If, when we die and stand before God, if we are not holy and righteous, we will stand in the most terrible judgment imaginable. We will stand before Him hopeless. How can it be any different? Well, it's only through Christ. And I want us to look this morning at at how God accomplishes this in Christ. As we begin in verse 11, we see that the righteousness that we lack can be obtained in this new covenant that God has made with His people. He says in verse 11, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, which is the old covenant, the old law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? Perfection, which is what we desperately need, was not available under the old law. If you go back to the Old Testament and you read what God says there to His people, if you read the law that He prescribes for His people, it is not something that can give them perfection. How do we know this? Well, He'll say at the end of this passage that we're looking at in chapter 7 that they had to go daily and make sacrifices. The people had to go, and they had to offer sacrifices. The priests had to go, and they had to offer sacrifices. And that was the only way they could have any type of forgiveness from God. But in the end, none of that was perfection. And friends, you've got to be perfect. You've got to be perfect today, in this hour, and in the next You've got to be perfect every single moment of your life. And that is simply unattainable through the old law. It simply will not work that way. It's simply not available to you. If it had been, there had been no need for Christ. Friends, if you could work on your own and be perfect, you would not need Jesus. I'll be very clear about that. If any person can be perfect if they can do every single thing that God has commanded them every single moment of every single day of their entire life, they do not need Jesus. But it's impossible. Even in thinking that we could be perfect, we're rebelling against God who in His Word tells us that we can't. And so we needed something different. And so God sends Jesus, His Son, to dwell among us and to become a different type of priest who offers us perfection. Christ has given us a new law and a new covenant. He tells us here for, in verse 12, for when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. I want to explain to you for just a moment kind of how this works. Because he hints at it here, but but you've got to know a lot of Old Testament background to kind of get this all worked out. 
The priests in Jesus' day, and as they had been for centuries, were from one particular family in the Bible. And to be a priest, you had to be from that family. That's why they call it the Levitical priesthood. You had to be from Levi. All of them had to be a part of that family. And that's where you found your hope. It was in that family's ability to stand in between you and God as priests and make a sacrifice for you. If you want to see a kind of a way that this worked uh, still shown today, you could go and look at the Catholic Church because they still hold to a lot of these thoughts in having a priest that stood in between you and God. But the problem that he talks about here in Hebrews is that that person who was standing in between you and God was very, very sinful. Just like you are very, very sinful. And so when you had to put your faith and hope in a person that was sinful, you were always going to come up with a lack of perfection. Because how could someone who was imperfect offer you to be perfect? Well, that doesn't make any sense. That's like somebody telling you that they don't know how to play basketball, but they're going to show you how to be a basketball star. Somebody telling you they don't know anything about a particular subject or about a particular sport, but they're going to tell you how to be an expert. I always like getting my advice on things from people who I know are good at them and have done them. I had a pastor friend who told me a story one time. He was in a preaching class, and there was a particular fellow in his preaching class who would rip on everybody's preaching. I mean, this guy tore everybody down. And so the expectation was that when this guy got up to preach, he was going to be the next Charles Stanley. He was going to be Adrian Rogers and Spurgeon and Calvin and Wesley and everybody rolled into one. He was going to be the best preacher of all time because of the way he criticized everybody else. So his day came to preach. And he couldn't have preached his way out of a brown paper bag. He was terrible. He didn't know what he was doing. He couldn't put things together. He couldn't put points together. He couldn't put sentences together. He was a terrible preacher. And so my buddy was charged with preaching after him. And so my buddy got up and preached, and he's been preaching for 30 years, and he's a wonderful preacher. And this guy opened his mouth and was going to begin to criticize. And he just held up his hand, and he stopped him. And he said, friend, after what you did yesterday... We're not listening to you anymore. And we're going to take his advice. Why would you listen to a guy that doesn't know what he's doing who's trying to tell you how to do it better? That's how the priesthood worked. You were going to walk in and make a sacrifice with a guy whose life was just as messed up as yours was. And you would somehow think that you could leave that sacrifice and have perfection. It just doesn't work like that. But the writer of Hebrews tells us that a new priest has come on the scene. A new priest has been appointed by God. And this new priest doesn't come from the house of Levi. This new priest doesn't get his authority based on who his daddy was. Well, actually, he does get his authority based on who his daddy was. And it had nothing to do with Levi. It had nothing to do with his earthly family. See, he says here that a change in priests 
means that there should be a change in the law. Jesus doesn't come from the house of Levi. Where does he come from? Look in verse 14, or verse 13, rather. He belongs to another tribe that has never served at the altar. Verse 14 tells us it's evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Jesus does not get his authority to be our priest based on his Descend, or based on his ancestors. He's like no priest before him. He has not come as a priest of the old covenant or the old law. He is not a priest because of some legal requirements. Verse 16 makes that clear. These priests, it didn't matter. It didn't matter a lot about who they were. It didn't matter a lot about their moral character. It didn't matter a lot about their scholarly learning. It was, well, what family are you from? And so Jesus comes on the scene, and he is not a priest like they have been. It's not based on him being from Levi. It's, it's not even based on him being from Judah. He says that family's never even served at the altar. They've never even been priests before. It's not even related to him being Jewish. It's all related to the fact, as he says there after verse 16, as he, as he says, or at the end of verse 16, he has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirements concerning, concerning bodily descent, but on the power of an indestructible life. We needed a priest. We needed someone who could be there for us forever. Because do you know what they faced in the Old Testament? They would get a good high priest. They would get someone who was godly and who would go in and make sacrifices for them and who would represent them well before God. And you know what would happen to him? He would die. He could not serve forever. He could not be a priest forever. Friends, we, we need someone who's there for us forever. We need someone who holds that place forever where it can never be taken away, where, where no one can ever come in and destroy it. We think about even the Jewish people today. Just about 40 years after Christ died, there was a rebellion in Israel. And Rome came in and destroyed Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, they came in and they destroyed the temple. Knocked it to the ground. And it had been destroyed before. This wasn't the first time someone had came in and destroyed their place of worship. But in the year 70 A.D., nearly 2,000 years ago, when Rome came in and they knocked down the place of worship, the place where the presence of God dwelt in that innermost sanctuary of the temple called the Holy of Holies, when it was knocked to the ground, guess what? It's never been rebuilt. There's not been another sacrifice made. There's not been another priest who ministered in the temple. As a matter of fact, if you get on a plane today and you fly to Israel and you go into Jerusalem, you go to the place where the temple was built, and there stands there now not a temple to the holy God, but a temple built as a mosque to Allah. That's what sits right there today. It wasn't a place that lasted forever. The priesthood is no more. 
Go, go to a Jewish synagogue today. They're not in there making sacrifices for their sin. They've changed their whole thought on that. As a matter of fact, most Jewish people today are ethnically Jewish and not religiously Jewish. There are very few people practice very much of the old law. Where would we be if that's where our salvation was dependent? Where would we be today if, if it was only through those sacrifices being made in the temple that haven't been made for 2,000 years that we could find our hope? We needed something new and we needed something permanent and Jesus comes along and he provides that for us. He becomes a priest because his life is indestructible and he can be that way forever. Now what he offers to us as we get to verse 18, what he offers to us is something that the former old covenant could not give us. He says in verse 18, for on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. If in the end, our need is to be perfect, if that was God's command, all the way back in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, as he created the world and he made it good, and he tells them that they can eat from any tree in the garden except for one, that was the only thing he gave them they had to do to be perfect. And they failed at that. And he gives them the law. And he gives them the priesthood. But it doesn't give them back perfection. Then it is weak. It's not beneficial for them. As a matter of fact, we understand now living on this side of the cross, living on this side of what Jesus did for us and dying for our sin, we understand that all of that all of the Old Testament, all of the things that are there are just pointing us toward Christ. They're building upon each other and pointing us toward the promised one that God would send, the one who would redeem us from our sin. But Christ has, has rendered it useless in the fact that why would you want to have something old that could never do what God's new covenant could give us. And so he says here that it's, it's been rendered weak and useless. He says in verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect. As a matter of fact, what the law does is continue to reveal to us our sinfulness. Go and read the Old Testament. See if you come anywhere close to God's definition of perfection. I love when the man comes to Jesus and he, he tries to make it out like he's kept all the commandments. I mean, he's got them all down, and he's good. And, and Jesus looks on him with such sorrow because he doesn't understand that the law doesn't make us perfect. It just continually points out our sinfulness. So what do we need? What, what does this new covenant do? If the old just revealed our sinfulness and made no one perfect, what does the new one do? Well, look, he says, but... Verse 19, on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. While this old covenant was in place where none of us could become perfect, God introduces us to a new covenant. 
He gives us a new message and a new priest. He gives us a new prophet and a new king. And through that prophet and priest and king, we have the opportunity to be made perfect. We are introduced to a better hope. And through this hope, we can draw near to God. See, in our imperfection, God is far off from us. I think this is one of the reasons that when we struggle with sin in our life, we often feel very far from God. When we we struggle with sin, and I talk to people all the time who are struggling with different things, and it's a common theme that they have, that they feel that they are far away from God. That he's far away from them, that they're far away from him, that they can't get to God because of this sinful thing in their life. Well, that's a natural feeling. Because when we are in our sin, and when we are in our imperfection, we are far away from God. We're far away from him. Now, aren't you glad that it takes but a moment for God to bring us near, but in our sin, we are far off from God. Because if he is holy and he is perfect and that's what he demands of us, then until we are holy and perfect, we will be far away from him. Because God wants nothing to do with sin. God hates sin completely. There's not some sin that he goes, well, this is okay. You know, they ought to know better. God hates sin, period. He hates it always and he always has because sin is always direct disobedience to what he has called us to do and what he desires for our life. So therefore he hates it. And as long as we are in our sin, as long as we are consumed by our sin, we will be far away from God. But the good news of the gospel and the good news of Hebrews chapter 7 is that he has made something different He has introduced the new hope by which we can draw near. We have a chance at perfection. This old covenant that was there, there was no oath. He says in verse 20, the priest of the old covenant did not make an oath. They did not swear by anything. Remember, they just became priests. You know, at least when we elect our officials, we make them put their hand on something and, and swear allegiance to some law or our constitution or something. Here there's nothing. No oath. He says, but this new covenant, this new promise that God has made to us. Look, there, he, he quotes from Psalm 110, verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. The Lord has promised to us, he has sworn to us that we will be saved, that we will have a relationship with him. It will be something that can never be taken away. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. We have security in the fact that God has made a covenant with us, he has made a promise with us, and he will not change his mind. Go back and remember, the old was based on what you did. If you listen to God... He would bless you. If you didn't listen to God, what, he left you alone? Is that what it says? No, it's not what it says at all. It says he will curse you. God's serious about this. And we still failed. Having those words written down that God would curse us if we didn't listen, we still didn't listen. 
And so he makes a new covenant. And he says, Christ will be with you. He will save you. He will give you hope and peace and life. And I will not change my mind. I've sworn it to you. You'll have a priest and he will not die. He will live forever. And I have promised it. It's not going to be based on what you've done because that hasn't worked. Go back to the garden. Hey, everything's going to be good if you don't eat this fruit. What do they do? It's like they run to it. I don't know how much time is elapsed there, but it's, you get this sense. It's like don't do it, and they turn and run as fast as they can. That makes the most sense to me. I would understand it better being that there was minutes in between the command instead of years or decades or centuries. They just... Hey, God said not to do this. Let's go try it out. You get to the Old Testament, and that's what it is. He delivers them out of Egypt. He parts the Red Sea. He brings them into the promised land. He gives them this wonderful commands that they can have this relationship with him. And what do they do? They grumble and complain and whine and disobey. And they want a king, and he gives them a good king. It took a few years with a bad king, but they gave him a good king. And what do they do? They disobey and fail. And that king disobeys and he fails. They couldn't do it on their own. You can't do it on your own. I'm struck by the passages in the New Testament, particularly one in 1 Peter, where it talks about God holding on to our salvation for us, keeping it for us. How great it is that we've got this wonderful gift, and instead of God giving it to us to mess up and squander, he holds on to it for us and protects it even from ourselves because sometimes our salvation needs protected from us because we try to mess it up, but God holds on tight to it, and he protects it. And so we have this priest of this new covenant that is better. As a matter of fact, verse 22 says that he is the guarantor of a better covenant He is the one who promises that the debt will be paid. If you take out a loan and you've got a guarantor, that's someone that says, if you can't pay it, I will. Well, for us, Jesus becomes the one. When God takes a look at our life, when he examines who we are and what we have, he doesn't look at our stamp of approval. He doesn't look at our parents' stamp of approval. He doesn't look at what church we went to or where our membership was or how many times we taught Sunday school. He looks and he wants to see if the name of his son is written on our life. And if the blood of Christ has been applied to our life, then it is guaranteed. It is taken care of. God will not change his mind. His promises will happen. We will be saved. We will spend an eternity with him. But friends, that's the only name on our life that matters. I'd rather have that name than the name of anyone else. Because the truth about it is, anyone else's name who would be there on my life, they need to have had Christ on theirs, or they had no hope. Jesus guarantees our life. See, the oath that is made says that Jesus guarantees a new covenant, a better covenant. The old priest could not do that. Verse 23 tells us that they were many in number, but they were prevented by death from continuing in office. There was a lot of them. There were some good, there were some that did great things, and there were some that were bad. But all of them were limited. 
all of them could not provide eternal perfection. But he says here, verse 24, but he, talking about Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. He never needs to be replaced. Now, there are many who will try. There are many who try to tell us that there is someone else or something else that can provide perfection. There's something else or someone else that can provide you with salvation. Friends, this world is full of thoughts and ideas about how you can be saved. And none of them are true except for Jesus. There are people who tell you that you can find life and perfection and happiness in your philosophy, in your beliefs about the world, your beliefs about the way the world works, your beliefs in science, your beliefs in mathematics, your beliefs in psychology or sociology, all of those things people try to offer you as a way to perfection and life and salvation, and none of them work. But Jesus, because he holds this office permanently, because he holds this position permanently, he can save to the uttermost. He can save not only for a short while, but He can save you for eternity. He can save you always and forever. He says He is able to save, this is verse 25, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. I don't know if you know this or not, but on occasion I go to sleep. I know it's kind of, you know, try to get eight hours, most likely six to seven, whatever. I try to go to sleep. I go on vacation. I go to lunch. I'm going to go to lunch today. Sometimes when I go to lunch, I don't answer people's phone calls. Sometimes when it's three o'clock in the morning, your phone calls won't wake me up. What's the point? I don't always live to make intercession for you. It's not my total life. We got kids. We got a lot of kids. We go on vacation. We do other stuff. It's not how it works. You go back to the Old Testament. Those priests, guess what? They were men. There were times when they went away on a trip. There were times when they went to sleep. There were times when they were eating, and I'm sure they didn't want to be bothered. What if in that moment, what if in that moment when the priest or me or anybody else was asleep, was the moment that, that you needed to stand before God? What hope would you have if in the moment when you needed somebody to plead your case before God, they were asleep? You think about Elijah and the prophets of Baal when they're on the Mount Carmel. And and what does he say when they don't answer? He says, hey, maybe they went on a journey or maybe they went to the bathroom. He's poking fun at them because their gods weren't there and listening. But Jesus never sleeps. He never grows tired. He never grows weary. But he lives, the Bible says here, he lives to make intercession for you. He lives. His purpose in life is to stand in between you and God and say, God, this one is your child. God, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. God, give them peace. 
God, give them comfort. Give them life. That's what Jesus stands to do. No priest in the Old Testament. No priest now. No pastor now. No parent or Sunday school teacher or deacon or anyone now can offer that to you. But Jesus does. He offers to stand there each and every day as you mess up. And plead your case before God. Offering you hope. He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. He is a priest who lives forever and we live under a covenant that is administered by a priest who never sleeps. In the Old Testament, they had a covenant that was administered by weak men who were chosen in their weakness. Friends, that's not a lot of security. That's not a lot of hope. But we live under the covenant that has been made with a God who has given us not a simple priest, but has given us His Son who daily lives to make intercession for us. And so the writer of Hebrews closes out this section beginning in verse 26 for saying it is indeed fitting. It's indeed fitting that we would receive such a high priest. Why? Well, because we stand before God unholy. We stand before God guilty. We stand before God stained and sinful. We stand before God embracing our love for this world and the things of it. And so isn't it fitting then that we would receive a high priest who is the opposite of us? A high priest who is holy. Verse 26 says, and is innocent is unstained, is separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. When you read that verse, you can only understand, it is only available to you to understand that He is the opposite of you. And He's the opposite of every person that came before Him that tried to fill that spot. Adam was created perfect. And yet he failed. Noah became the great savior of the world, but he was sinful. Abraham becomes the father of a great nation, and Isaac and Jacob, his sons, father a great nation, but they are imperfect. Moses is the great lawgiver, and he brings the people out of captivity, but he is greatly imperfect. Joshua is the great military leader who conquers the promised land, but he's imperfect. Each and every one of the judges, though God raised them up for a time, they stood imperfect. Saul, the first king, is imperfect, and God takes the throne from him and his whole family. David and Solomon are are kings who honor God, but they are imperfect. Because they are imperfect, they do not last forever. God raises up each one of the prophets and He brings them the Word of God and they give it to the people, but they are imperfect. And so they are unable 
to last forever. They're unable to stand in the place of the people and be their representative forever. And then after 400 years of silence, even a man who is brought on the scene who cries in the wilderness, John the Baptist, he realizes he's imperfect and he points the way to another. But he doesn't have to point far. Because he's there and he's in the water and he's baptizing people and he says, behold the Lamb of God. And Jesus doesn't point ahead to anybody else. God speaks out of heaven and he says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. This is the one. There's no more pointing forward. This is the one who will stand in your place. And he demonstrates that as Jesus is nailed to a cross and is put up between heaven and earth as our representative standing before us. And since he has died, we're told in verse 27 that he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily first for his own sins and then for those of the people since he did this once for all. When he offered himself, it's fitting that we should be given a high priest that is most unlike us. He did not give in to sin. He did not fall into its trap. We're told that the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, verse 28. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. God's oath, God's promise that he would send a priest who would never die, his promise that he would never change his mind and that we would have hope in him forever. He keeps that promise in Christ. And Christ will never stop making intercession for us. He will never give up in making intercession for us. Friends, you and I are very sinful. We fall so dramatically short of what God's commanded for us. It should bother us. It should sicken us that we could come so short of our Creator. But He has given us Christ, and in Him we have hope. In Him we can be perfect. In Him we can be righteous. He offers it to us. He offers us His perfection and righteousness because Christ wants us to have a relationship with His heavenly Father. If you think about the life of Christ, if you think about the things that He did, He was so close and intimate with His heavenly Father. And He didn't want us his brothers, his sisters, to be left without that relationship. And so he came as our high priest, one that would never fade, one that would never grow old. And he stands ready this morning to plead your case before his father. You need to be perfect. And you can try it on your own. But you're going to fail. Or you can place your faith and trust in Christ. 
You can turn from the ways of this world. You can turn from the evil that so grabs us and entangles us and ensnares us. And you can turn to the only one who offers you what you really need. And so that's the question this morning. Are you going to keep trying to be perfect on your own? Because it's not going to work. And it's going to end badly. Or today, are you going to cry out to God? Cry out with thanksgiving that He has given you life. He has offered you life in Christ. And you can have it today. It's the choice before you. God demands that we be perfect. And He offers us only one way to get there. We bow your heads with me and close your eyes. Heavenly Father, God, we are grateful that today we can know you. Today, in spite of our imperfection, God, we can have a relationship with you. Nothing unrighteous can even come into your presence. Nothing unrighteous can, God, can be allowed to last forever. But God, I'm thankful that today we have hope because you have offered us the righteousness of your Son. He has went to the cross and paid our penalty. He has went to the cross and taken on our sin. He has went through the chastisement that was promised to us. And God, we're grateful that by his wounds we have been healed. So God, today, for those here who do not know you, I would just ask that you would speak to their heart. God, show them that they are unable to be perfect on their own, that they are unable to come to you and stand before you. But God, speak to them about the love of Christ, that he was willing to take their place and die for their sin. God, we are grateful that you have called us your children, you have given us an inheritance, you have promised us salvation, and you have, God, sworn an oath. You've made a covenant with us that can never end, that can never be changed, that can never be destroyed. And God, I just pray that we, we would be obedient to you, that we would respond to you this morning, that, God, you would work in our heart and in our life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you would stand with me, we're going to play some music during this time. And I want to invite you to pray. I want to invite you to pray because, frankly, we continue to be imperfect. 
We continue to sin against God and fail to do what God has called us to do, but God gives us life and hope and encouragement. And so I want to ask you to pray as the music is playing, just quietly where you are, pray that God would continue to speak to your heart, that he would always impress upon you the joy that you can have because he has went to the cross, he has died in your place, and he has offered you life. And friends, if you have that, you have the blessed hope of eternity. You have the promises of God. But we need to be reminded of that because we take it so for granted. We get in our routines of the week and we just just go through the day. But God has called us to more than that. As the music's playing, if, if you need to come to the front and play, pray or if you would like me to pray with you, I would love to do that. And as always, if you don't know Christ, let me remind you that today is the day that he's calling you to salvation. Would you take this time and pray as the music's playing?